from TMP to TTNG For sure the cure and those tired meme jeans Hella Kinsella and the promise ring Sunny day real estate and rights this spring Prince Twinkle Daddy's help keep the dream alive I constantly thank God for Algernon and Remo Christie front drive. Mineral snowing high tide hotel here and more. Rio Limo only consists of the DC emotive hardcore. This is episode 34 of the E-Word. This is the 2013 A Decade Under the Influence episode. This is Kyle, joined with Ellie. As always. As always. And guesting from the 2013 winning record is Chris Teddy of The World is a Beautiful Place and I'm No Longer Afraid to Die. Chris, we're stoked hey. to have you. Hey, stoked to be here. This is, this is awesome. Yeah, and we're going to be talking about Whenever If Ever, which is the winner of 2013. Um, so we're going to talk a shit ton about that record, about what was going on in 2013 and everything. And one thing that has been happening on these episodes is that we go for a long time. So I guess at the top of the episode, what's up with the world is right now. So we just announced a tour in the fall around Fest um, with Harmony Woods, um, which I produced, mixed and uh, engineered the newest harmony woods record which is um should be out this year as far as i know um and yeah we've just been writing um because we we toured like pretty hard and then just needed like some time to chill and write and you have a studio right or do you own yes silver bullet i i, I co-own it okay with another engineer his name's greg thomas uh, uh he plays in a band called end it's like uh a hardcore band with like um, yeah with, like, got counterparts. counterparts and yeah sorry <laughs> yeah uh yeah they <laughs> yeah that's like uh another producer will putney he's he's done like body count the counterparts um like tons of tons of stuff um uh, i think he was and, also in for an autopsy yeah he he like records and that is his band he just doesn't tour with them as far as i know he, yeah. he kind of like does everything else behind, like a lot of the stuff behind the scenes. But when they tour, he's he has to be like home producing stuff, which is chill. Yeah, uh, I believe he's also producing the new Knocked Loose record. Or had yeah. did, did that fully come out? I, I I saw they had a single, but it's like two uh, it's not it's not quite out yet. They have like a they they have like an EP, and then they did like a single off the track from the EP. 
<laughs> so uh, like, okay. They they released like the same song like three times now, and then did like uh like a re-recorded version of an old song. But the songs that I have heard from the new record have sounded like amazing. This is an emo podcast. This is gonna be a hardcore episode, isn't it? <laughs> I guess somehow it's turn it's gonna turn into that. <laughs> Ellie, do you um, want to ask your um your token question of are there any Scrams connections in the world? Is I mean, I I feel like almost positive that there are like plenty of Scrams connections with the world. Is I know at least that uh, like the lore in general is that the name comes from like making fun of screamo bands. Uh, it's far, like so the name. I'll preface this: the name was chosen before I joined the band, like probably like a year before. But it was like like the the long like post rock screamo like. Like, I wrote haikus about cannibalism in your yearbook, yeah. that type of yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that band is cool. Uh, um, I mean, My Heart to Joy certainly had screamo ties. So, like, scram, screamo, like, ties. So, like, I mean, that, you know, that carried over to who World is was playing shows with early on and people we know. I mean, not to get too far ahead of myself, but I'm still hearing, like, those influences by whenever, if ever. But, like, I, yeah. I, guess, we'll, I guess we'll get to that uh, when we get to it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I there's definitely some of that in there. Cool. So we can officially start with some of the pre whenever if ever stuff. Um, so I guess some of the bands that came before the world is would be My Heart to Joy. Were there any other bigger ones? Like was Nicole doing anything before whenever if ever under like a proper um, band name? Oh, there was a were... 100 Year Ocean. Yes. I think that did that did exist, but like I don't really know the names of any much else um, that would have really done much. Steve, our drummer, he played in a noise band called Brava Spectra that played a lot in like Connecticut and like the surrounding area. But <laughs> that is such a noise rock I, band. It wasn't man. like, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, there they were the art punks for sure uh i mean the first time i ever saw steve was when he was playing a show with his old noise band brother spectra and like i felt like i was in a riot like insane he was like playing one of the craziest fastest drum parts i've ever heard it like went on for like a few minutes the like bassist threw down his entire full stack the bass was being dragged on the ground there was people screaming and running around it was like in like a small diy spot so that was like my intro to steve buttery as like a musician it was it was like insane to see i had seen hardcore shows i'd seen metal shows but that was just like on another level like, so other than that how is the dillinger escape plan show <laughs> I, I i did i did uh i did see them a couple years ago their, their drummer billy is really chill um Someone Anyways, in that band is chill. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like they have to get all their like insanity out on stage. They just like save it up and spend it so that they can uh Yeah. They can be functional human beings elsewhere. That's the only thing I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the trade off is you see like a band like that, that yeah, they like they'll let, let that all off on stage, but like some of the most tame bands are probably the most intense humans probably sometimes. Like, it was not really. Trust me, we interview a lot of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like, yeah, as far as like anything to do with like World is like members, 
they it like there wasn't much like notable things that like people were part of really like beforehand um aside from like a few of us like who had joined after the first ep um were in my heart to joy and that band had toured like a lot and played with like all the bands like algernon uh snowing mm-hmm. uh loma prieta comadre um trying to think of who else like there's so many touche we played my heart to joy played touche's first like east coast shows it's a lot of stuff like a lot of spew that's that's that sounds like it would have been so rad to see like og yeah. touche first time on the east coast mm-hmm. yes yeah it was like really like awesome like i was like very into those like, like the first like the demo and then like the first record probably came out around then like i was very into those and seeing those like honestly live and stuff like yeah. in a small like DIY spot but like people going ape shit for that like it's it was like sick like i didn't like really i like appreciated it for what it was but like i don't think i really appreciated it as when it's happening you don't really like think of, about it too much you just accept this is what it is but like looking back you're like oh wow that's like just actually really cool like playing a basement with like comadre in like minneapolis like on my first tour like that was one of my favorite bands like that's sick as hell or like uh the first my heart to joy tour i did in 2009 it was our first full u.s my first tour ever was a full u.s tour Christ. and we played what was supposed to be loma prieta's last show in san francisco that was sick what was supposed to be because that that band is like the kiss of hardcore <laughs> they will never stop yeah i mean as far as i knew they were i'll like rewind this but i joined my heart to joy in 2000 in early 2009 and then the first tour i went on was a few months later full us i played out of state like twice in my life and then like full us like 30 day tour yeah so we played with loma prieta in san francisco they were like kicking like uh, the guitarist was leaving in the band and i remember they're like well we can't continue as a band and i feel like greg horrible who played guitar in world is and looks a bunch of bands i'm sure everyone listens to here that's listening to this but like i think he was like why don't they just like get a new guitarist like they don't have to just break up not just like one person in the band and i think they came to that realization after playing what they said was going to be their last show right so (laughs) i i actually just remembered my favorite world is uh screamo connection which is uh bring me the head of brian chambly (laughs) i I posted that online and people still bring that up yeah every screamo kid i know has like even if they don't like the band anymore they still have respect for the world is because of that and Brian Chambly, like anyone who's ever interacted with that person can tell you that they are like trapped in arrested development and are exhausting and terrible to be around. So yeah, still props for bring me the head of Brian Chambly. Yeah. Thanks. I, yeah, <laughs> that was in a late night rage of don't be mean to people online and <laughs> <Dumb internet. laughs> um, that's pretty much. Yeah. I mean, th- there was tons of bands that like, I mean, My Heart to Joy had played with that later on, like, World Is played with. It, like, kind of set the... Like, it wasn't like World Is was was formed as... World Is was never formed as, like, a members of My Heart to Joy thing. Like, the World Is had formed, and then, like, maybe a year later, they went through their own lineup changes 
and people from Arkansas joined. Right. So our friends group, it was all like pretty similar. So it was like, oh well, Marta Joy played with Snowing. So and so from Marta Joy's and World Is. Why doesn't Snowing play with them? And that was you and Greg. That was in Mar- My Heart to Joy. Yes, and Steve was in My Heart to Joy at the very end. Like he wasn't on any recordings. Basically, My Heart to Joy did our last full U.S. tour summer of 2017. Our drummer, Alan, quit, and we had a bunch of stuff lined up, which Alan later went on to play in Self-Defense Family, and I think he still plays in Self-Defense Family. Okay. I think that is why I was scratching my head for the longest time about why Self-Defense Family on the Wikipedia page for The World Is is like an associated act. And I was like, what the fuck is this? It makes perfect sense to me. They're both on the East Coast and function kind of like almost like a collective with... Yeah. Yeah. My Heart to Joy played with when, with them when they were end of a year. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we had... So we... My Heart to Joy was going to do a split with end of a year in like 2009 or 10. I remember the main, the main people from each band who talked to each other was Patrick, their singer, and our drummer, Alan. They ended up becoming friends because of that. My Heart to Joy never did a split with end of a year, but Alan, having be- become friends with Pat, later joined self-defense family slash end of a year. And like a lot of, there was a good, a good chunk of early world shows that were with self-defense family. And one of the self-defense family shows that we played in Connecticut was when self-defense family, I believe they were in Jamaica recording an EP, like their Jamaica EP had, you ever hear of the band aficionado? Yeah. Yep. Yep. They had members of that band and other people play as self-defense family in Connecticut with pre-recorded banter from Patrick on an iPod that would play between songs. Holy fuck. That is incredibly Patrick. (laughs) Yeah. Like, it came up as an idea, as a joke at first, and then they saw it through, and I was like, this is like, like, I've heard of a collective, but I've never heard of this. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? How was how have I never heard that yeah. story? Because that's like incredible. I mean, there's probably like 30, 40. No, there's a little more than that. There's more than that. There I'd say like a hundred people were there. But like it was mostly all, all people in Connecticut, and I feel like a lot of those people might not still be involved with bands and that's like one of the like wildest things I have experienced. Like an idea of a band to do. Something yeah. like that. But um feel like i'm skipping around a little bit <laughs> but <laughs> um okay I'll, I'll rewind it a little bit so my heart to joy existed we broke up in like 2010 played like last shows with two drummers which one of them was steve buttery and like if you ever see any photos of like the last few my heart to joy shows it's two drummers going at once so mm-hmm. like we were already like like me greg and steve were already used to playing with like a large ensemble on stage so like it, it was weird to me later joining world is and people being like it's like the eight person band and i was like yeah but i played shows with the band that had two full drum sets set up on stage two or three guitars going like it didn't seem weird but um late 2010 greg and steve joined world is and that's when they did the josh's dead ep mm-hmm. yep which second ep after formlessness which that formlessness was done in like 2010 
2009 or 10, uh, like self-recorded in a basement. Then I did a tour with World Is at the end of 2010 slash beginning of 2011 where I was taking photos. I was doing a lot of like photos at shows because like My Heart to Joy was falling apart. But like I was at all these six shows. I was like seeing like Algernon and Snowing and like uh, early Touche, Balance and Composure, uh, Hostage Calm. Um, was that all in Connecticut? Connecticut and New York State, Boston. Like, Damn. like if my heart's joy was playing with them, I was starting to take photos. If World Is was playing with them, I was riding in the van with World Is. If Hostage Calm was playing with them, I was riding. I would go with Hostage Calm and just like hang out and take photos. Because at the time, no one was really documenting that stuff, and I felt like there would be something important with all this. Like, um, I knew they weren't massive shows. Like, they weren't like a thousand people selling out. Of, like the whatever huge venues in new york but like madison was, square garden <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. They were still at madison square garden, but like you know playing like the weird diy spot in new york that's going to shut down next month like yeah so, and then you know like, they make their way up to starlin ballroom and you know uh i mean all the all the bands you, you mentioned now and including the world is are definitely i think like generational touchstones and without them i like really doubt that we'd even have a podcast, much less be talking about uh, this kind of past decade of that scene. All just like super formative and definitive bands of of this era, I believe. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I consider myself very lucky to have been slash am a part of that. Like, it's it's cool. But yeah, I was like taking a lot of photos at shows. So my first tour with World is in the beginning of 2010 was just taking photos and driving. And then it turned into filling in on bass a couple months later because they did South by Southwest and our bassist Josh who's been in it from the beginning he couldn't do the tour because of his work schedule so I can't I found out a week before the tour and I canceled all my midterms in college and I just told all my professors like I was I had already been conditioned from like my heart to joy to just not give a shit about college and like just skip whatever and so like I just told all my professors like i have to go play south by southwest with this band and i'm sorry i just have to take my midterms later and they were all in shock but they were like all right i guess we will do this i did that and then i joined like a couple months later on guitar and trumpet which was when they were recording are here to help you if you can think back to like 2013 like i mean you like yep. you like rattled off like a bunch of bands but like uh yeah. what, <laughs> like hostage column for example has mm-hmm. really sonically little to do with the sound that the world is has, but like that's that shit just didn't matter. Like, and that's something that yeah, we talk no, about like missing matter. all the time. Like these mixed bills and like these mixed splits and stuff. Was it just yeah, kind of I like mean, proximity? At like people just like each other. I mean, my heart to joy toured with Hostage Calm like a bunch. And yeah, I had always thought Hostage Calm were like the BFFs because it was. Shitty Greg and uh, that the person from Hostage Calm who came up with Twinkle Daddies. Uh, oh, oh, Casey. Yeah. Right, Casey, yeah, yes. Yeah, the tour we did, the tour My Heart to Joy and Greg, or the tour My Heart to Joy and Hostage Calm did, was in a transitional period for Hostage Calm, where they were known as a hardcore band. And it was like, they, they were like sick of it. They like hated the violence at the shows. They wanted to be more than just a hardcore band. They wanted to like, they were like, we don't just listen to hardcore. Like we like hardcore, but like we listen to so much more than that. 
and clearly their self-titled record that came out around that time was batshit wild and different but they still only had hardcore contacts for their shows and my heart to joy had all the emo screamo contacts <laughs> so like every other day was different like like my heart to joy would feel we'd feel awkward as fuck like playing like a weird hardcore bill like a like an ignorant hardcore bill but it was like in south carolina that's like the only people hostage com knew but then like the next day in florida we play with like an algernon ripoff band and like we'd be like yeah this is like what we know and they'd be like what the fuck <laughs> um yeah that they just call, started calling it twinkle daddies and i i tried really hard to like get that term to stick like i was doing like online some like online articles and photo sets and stuff and i tried using the term on this one online magazine it was for snowing no it was for um i i i did like a photo set for who was it some online magazine it was for uh street smart cyclist reunion shows and i gave a summary of the, the two days that 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 occurred and i used twinkle daddies like a ton and the online magazine edited out edited out every single twinkle daddy reference <laughs> this censorship will not stand yeah they were like they were like thanks for the write-up here's what we did and they like changed it and they like messed up like what bands played and stuff and i was like all right cool like thanks but then like you know the term stuck somehow with other people through the grapevine but but to bring it back yes there even though hospital didn't sound like world is and vice versa that was like our friends, like Tom Chiari, the one of the guitarists from Hostage Com. He he's like the guy at Run for Cover. Records. Yeah. Like I remember when he was like starting to work with Run for Cover, and he was like, "Yeah, like it's a cool label. Like Hostage Com is going to release a record with them." Like I was like, "Oh, that's cool, fun stuff." But like, I don't know. I I don't I I don't like when people are, are too judgmental on certain like, "Oh, this band." doesn't sound like that why are they on the same show like if you're friends and like you each mutually respect one another's music that's fucking cool and like support others because there's not only like one music genre like you know mm -hmm. yeah and i mean like stuff like that and also like the split that happened with uh self-defense and code orange uh i think that all kind of yeah. like speaks to the to the fact that even in the early days, but especially the way that the sound had evolved by 2013, the world is were just really eclectic, especially in like within the realm of quote unquote twinkle daddies. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I think personally that that's like a, a huge reason that whenever if ever became such a flashpoint and it, like in my, in my own personal experience, like I remember listening to that, that album when it came out in mm -hmm. 2013 and thinking to myself oh this is this is the turning point this is when it's not just going to be me and the other three weirdos at my high school who know like what emo is and that that kind of came true what what what's your perspective on that like did did you know how fast did you know that whenever forever was going to be like a hit or like a landmark um okay so we had worked on it a lot. So when I joined the band in 2011, because this goes back before 2013, like when we started working on it, because clearly it came out in 2013, but we recorded a lot of it and wrote a lot of it before that. So when I joined in 2011, 
we started writing songs for that record. And the first song we wrote when I joined the band was uh, from the Crow's Nest on Fire Street, which didn't make it onto Whenever If Ever, but came out later in 2015 on um, Destiny Year's Long Live Happy Birthday. It came out on one of those seven inches in like 2015-ish. So like, just to, just to say that we were writing stuff that came out even like years later in that, in that same time frame. Um, so we started writing stuff for it in 2011 and that record, whenever if ever was super delayed, like super delayed. Like we originally were planning on releasing it in 2012. So we had been writing throughout 2011, doing a lot of weekend tours, couple week long tours here and there while I was like still, I think I was still in college and maybe someone else was. Like it felt special, like what we were coming up with. I was like, wow, this is cool. Like I, I had, I personally was getting more and more into post-rock and like the band was leaning, starting to lean more towards that. We were like, you don't say. Yeah, right. But like, like, like at that time, like for me, for example, my favorite band around then was just like Caspian and, um, some stuff like that and not necessarily like American football. Like I had already gone through that phase years before that, not a phase, but like it wasn't brand new to me. Um, um, everyone was like pulling from different influences though, which could sound like a terrible idea, like a high school band, but it can't, it it was like, I feel like everyone had like, like very, like the taste and everything that everyone was into was like the best bands of, each of those genres, like the most respectable kind of stuff, mm-hmm. I feel. So, I mean, we, we, we had like demoed that whole record. I did it on like a little like shitty, like USB interface, like two input USB interface. I, I had been interning at Silver Bullet before I joined World Is. So like I had record, some recording knowledge and like it kept my recording knowledge and gear started growing during that period so like as i was getting things we were using them and, and like we demoed the whole record like really shitty like you know like here's one mic in the basement to record the drums and here's like you know one take through the guitar just to get a rough idea of it and we spent like a while on like mapping out vocals and stuff and and that was like a very long process, but we would like meet up for practice a couple times a week and like analyze the shit a lot. We started actually tracking it in the summer of 2012. So around that time we were doing like weekend shows. We did like a weekend with full of hell, birds and row code orange. But then like a couple weeks later, we would probably do like some shows with like Algernon and snowing and stuff. So it was a real mixed bag and that all kind of came into play. And like, I thought the rec, I, I had a lot of faith in the record and like, that was like, everyone else did in the band too. And like, I wanted it to be something special, but it's easy to get in your own head and think, Oh, my band is like amazing. This record, no one, no one's going to like know what hit them when they hear it. And like 90, 90, Five percent of the time, you know, it's just someone who has tunnel vision on a project and don't really like realize that they're just kind of like rehashing the same stuff that anyone else has done. But like all like the struggles through making that record 
I personally was like ride or die with it. Like I was like, this has to come out. Like we retract tons of, I retract tons of stuff on my own with my own setup for that record. And like I sequenced out the record. Like I got, we got the mixes from the guy we recorded most of it with and me and Greg like laid out like how each song went into each other and then like sent it to the band to see what they all thought. It felt like a special thing at the time for sure. I just didn't think it was going to do what it did. If that makes sense. Like it was, right. it, it, it went beyond my expectations. Like I thought like, Oh, it'll be cool. And we'll play like a 150 cap DIY spot now instead of like a basement. I was like, that's like rock star. That's, crazy like maybe one day we'll have a trailer for our van <laughs> um but then you know it started getting traction like then it started becoming the thing that brooklyn vegan was talking about and pitchfork was talking about and consequence of sound was doing like top 10 emo revival albums you need to hear and put whenever yeah. if ever at like number one um i remember when that pitchfork review dropped we were on tour we had just like we were in the middle of like a six week full u.s and like when the Pitchfork review dropped, that blew my mind. Like, <laughs> like growing up, like a lot of like my music snob friends were like, "Oh, oh yes, Pitchfork, I, that's that's what I love." Like, I was like, "Man, that if you make it as a band, you must get like as an indie band. That's like it must it's gonna get reviewed on Pitchfork." And I didn't think it would in any capacity. And then when that happened, I was like, "I don't care if they gave it a two. Like, that's amazing." <laughs> were Were you like? having any expectations because you know like top shelf was putting it out like because that was the label for the genre at that time for sure it was yeah i mean like pianos become the teeth those were old yeah, friends from yeah. my, i met them playing with my heart to joy like they were basically a screamo band at first like for all intents and purposes so like <laughs> It's so um, weird to think to think of people being like, "Oh yeah, pianos become the teeth." They used to be a screamo band. <laughs> like, yeah, like, to, to me that was like just what they were for so long, and now they're like pianos become the teeth are like this whole other thing entirely. They're big room indie. Um, and sorry, I'm, I'm getting off track. That was just really <laughs> like really threw me for a loop there. <laughs> that's fine. I mean, yeah, like I mean, I I don't know if I thought that top shelf putting it out was really gonna like affect things uh top shelf was doing really well at that time mm -hmm. in, in that scene in particular that was like a little bit of it but i really just like believed in the record like that's really like what it was mm -hmm. and like i mean i feel like in the end it doesn't matter what label that came out on as long if if it came out on like a similar label it probably would have done just the, the same because like realistically that record fucking leaked like a month or two before it was actually supposed oh, to come out god i forgot about that yeah and so i was like really angry when that happened at first like for like the first five minutes because like i got a call <laughs> I, I got a call at like 1 a.m that like from greg horrible that was like yo the record just leaked and i was like what the fuck like I hadn't sent it to anyone. Like whoever I was probably dating at the time didn't even, I didn't fucking give them the record. No one I knew. I was like, I'm not handing it off to anyone. And like, you know, it did get around to a couple people here and there. And then, you know, soul seek happened, um, which is what it leaked on. 
which is what I used to download like Ampere and Orchid records on when I was in high school. Um, <laughs> uh, Screamo. But like, I think what when I knew it was going to do well was the record leaked. The next day we left for a tour with Cersei, a fucking hardcore band, like not an emo band. Um, and we played in Boston and the show sold out. It was like obscene. And people knew the words to like the first track or second track on the record, Heartbeat in the Brain. And like, we had played that song like a ton beforehand on tours and no one reacted. It was like playing to a fucking, like a brick wall. And like playing it then, like people were singing along to it. And I was like, what the fuck just happened? Like the record leaked like less than 24 hours ago. And how do these people know the words to it? That's fucked up. <laughs> That's crazy. So like, that was kind of like a hint. So one of the things that I've always, or that, that that's like kind of like crystallized in my memory is like when this album came out, like the nearest show to me was in Chicago and it was You, Dads, and Pity Sex. And it was a house show. And I was like... Was you to be on that? I don't know. I didn't go to the show. <laughs> I was just... Way to out yourself as a poser, Kyle. I mean, that's like three hours away from me. But like, I was just losing my mind about like how like all these bands put out huge records this year. And like, their yeah. show is in a basement. And like all well, these records were like reviewed by like Pitchfork too. That was insane. That was insane to be on that. And like well that show that was in a that was like kind of like a warehouse space. It was a little bit bigger, but like it was still insane. Um which I think the person who ran that place is Dave Collis from Slow Mass, if you've heard of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're awesome. Which like yeah, Slow Mass is amazing. Which like it's like all like kind of a small world. Like uh, dr- the drummer and the other guitarist of Slow Mass were in a band called Former Thieves, a hardcore band from like Iowa that My Heart to Joy and World Is had played with. Like you know, they they later went out and played in like Into It Over It and then now Slow Mass. It, it, it's like it's like a pretty small world, really. It's like, it's a small world where everyone first, started as a hardcore band. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, I mean the first, the very first tour I did with my my heart to joy, when we played in Grand Rapids, we played at um, the house where like a couple of people from Loud Dispute were living. Like we dead ass just like messaged them on MySpace only because you, on MySpace you could search like what genre of bands were in what city. So, like, that's how we booked our tours was, like, you just email, like, how, like bands that you thought were, like, maybe cool or something, like, from, like, oh, we need to play Grand Rapids. Let's just see if they know anyone. And they were, like, oh, yeah, we actually do, like, My Heart to Joy. You can play our house. That would be awesome. And, like, I've known them ever since. And, like, they're still a band that's around and does well. Like, pretty nuts. So. That's, that's crazy because I, I wasn't, like, attuned into, like, the band world itself enough to know about that aspect of it. But MySpace basically being like Craigslist for booking uh, is a trip. And yeah. in my recollection, like it, it was all about like networking and promotion and uh, like the top eights. But that's a, that's a really cool angle uh, that I, I didn't realize that you could just use MySpace to be like, yo, <laughs> put on my show. Um, yeah, yeah, and that's like how we like met a lot of people. It's like weird to say MySpace, like it's like almost taboo. Like, 
it feels like like people like have like this view of my space as being like this like work tour like swoopy hair thing but i was just like that was like a that was a chill way to book some like screamo tours <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that chicago show was crazy i do remember that one the the one after whenever if ever came out and like yeah chicago has always been like a cool home for us how old were you when it came out when it, whenever if ever like 21 or 22 oh okay so i mean i was 23 at the time so we're like the same age ish ish yeah right mm-hmm. i was 16 <laughs> that's cool <laughs> <laughs> so like maybe one more thing before we get into the record um is just maybe talking about the world is we're pretty quickly established as like very online in the way that you would use social media i guess and like yeah you're always kind of I don't know, there's a nice way to put it. You were always kind of like giving your fans shit or people that interacted with you online. <laughs> so I guess there's like what's like the history behind all that? Like like whose ideas and like who was running it and stuff? And like and like maybe specifically about Tumblr, because you were like very, very early on. Yeah, on Tumblr, Tumblr. Tumblr and Formspring for sure were like the big uh yeah. Those were cool because you could send people could send in questions and like you could respond to it and generally it would tie to someone's account. Like it was like Tumblr was like there was anonymous questions, but like usually if like I, at least I could know it was a human being sending it. But like that was like cool. I, like none of that was all me. I've been doing a lot of those posts over the. I've done a fair share of those posts throughout the years, but like those were like other members too. Like various people who have been in the band like were also posting that but like not that every post is something that I was necessarily stoked on you know like <laughs> I wouldn't say every post I was like yes I will take this to my grave like if someone else in the band said it or even maybe something stupid that I was like just like snarky about and like seven years ago you know but like I don't know. It was a lot of it was just in jest. It wasn't like meant to be like, fuck you, like to people. Cause like people would be like snarky to us and like sarcastic. And that, that's the general vibe that I was like fine with like being sarcastic or like, you know, just joking around, not trying to be hurtful really is not my vibe. Not saying that there's a lot of posts like that at all, but like, you know, it, it, it wasn't, none of it was really trying to come from a bad place. Right. I think sort of what Kyle was trying to get at was that I don't want to use the phrase like marketing tactic, but I think that really worked yeah. as far as like, um, I mean, like establishing uh, kind of like a back and forth with your fans in that way yeah. made you seem that like I human loved. and approachable mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, that, that I loved. And that's always like fun. Like, that's why I like Twitter and stuff. Like, I don't really like much other social media pages like other like like i don't facebook kind of sucks like you post something and then all of a sudden like a maga dude is like why are you donating to planned parenthood this sucks but like on twitter <laughs> like like I, fi- I find more weird conservative shit on like facebook for some reason and i fucking hate it but like twitter oh, yeah. generally like at least the circles we follow are like generally more positive like oh that's cool you're donating to planned parenthood that's great let's support our like friends who are doing that i mean and, like, I, I think I was just going to say, I think that's because uh, Twitter, you can much more directly curate, like, like who you 
follow and who follows you and so you can kind of yeah. create a more like a community that caters more towards uh what your interests and beliefs align with and then on facebook old people use facebook and <laughs> lots yeah. more old people are conservative than young people so you kind of just have no control over some like maga hat shit stain yeah <laughs> trolling you which i will say which i will say like it's sick because i think we kind of grew up in like a generation that like that's normal to us is like posting stupid shit online like at this point i'm not confused as to why i wake up and i see why everyone's want is like joking about storming area 51 like that's like <laughs> i'm like this is to find Whereas, like, you know, someone, like, 10 years older than any of us is just like, I don't, what do you mean there's, like, a frog riding a unicycle? Like, what's funny about that? And you're like, it's, you just have to accept it. But um, I, I thought it was, I, I do like being able to not have, like, be behind, like, these closed doors, like, these curtains of, like, our record was successful, thus you can't talk to us. It's like, no, just, like, human beings. Like, the record happened to be well, and, like, I want to fucking communicate with people on like a normal ass basis you know yeah and, like i don't think there was any like oh this is a marketing thing it was just like yo this is fun and like i enjoy talking to people that ha may have common interests like this is fucking sick i'd rather talk to someone and argue about like uh what like what fucking casket lottery record is the best or apple c cats record is the best than like some dude i went to high school with who went to see five figure death punch and like fucking hates immigrants or something like you know what I mean? like if, <laughs> if that makes sense like i don't know i don't know how else to say it you know five finger death punch was the only band you could have used for that example <laughs> i went in a deep hole of the internet the other day and i just like like are they an industry plant by the military like <laughs> <laughs> yeah like like people that spend their money on it like i don't know anyways let's move on from that but yeah. <laughs> all right it was never a mar like a marketing business thing it's just like we wanted to have fun but it was something that like i and probably a bunch of people were like definitely there for like i would love to see what latest shit you said on the internet because it was always funny and it was always just like relatable and stuff so i think it was like a big yeah. part yeah i just hate when bands like try to pull the the like we're too good for any of this shit and they'll like wipe their whole social media they'll like wipe their instagram page and then they like only upload stuff with like a weird filter and they're like we're a fucking mysterious band and it's like no you're not like stop it like just like be chill and i i think that uh, the world is kind of struck that perfect balance between uh, that rock star shit that you were talking about and this new generation of bands that use like memes as marketing um, yeah, y'all were just like the the OG shit post band, and I yeah. think I uh, we have a lot meant. to thank I, you for. I didn't, even, I didn't even know what meme meant. We were just posting stupid shit, and then people were like, "Is that a meme?" And I was like, "I don't know. This is just like a funny photo." <laughs> so I when to the Google, band released a fork, you Google. thought it was totally normal. <laughs> I think by that point I realized, <laughs> but yeah. All right. Do do we want to dive into the record? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so track number one, blank number nine. This is, I feel like a lot of people maybe skip this song and kind of regard Heartbeat in the Brain as the opener. Yeah. I I feel like without without like the ambient build 
buildup of this song, Heartbeat in the Brain, uh, has a little bit less impact. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I do think this was like this did a lot of like tone setting as far as like, oh, this is a record that is incorporating more post rock influences. Uh, mm-hmm. Why 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 did y'all choose to to make this like a like a standalone track rather than making Heartbeat in the Brain like a uh, seven minutes long? <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, fair question. I it just like I think that was something that we were playing live. Like, cause we, we, through the years we've done like these transitional things called blank. So like blank number nine is the ninth one through the mm-hmm. discography in case anyone hasn't like caught that. Yeah. So, and I full flat out admit, I lose count of those things. I just know, know what they, those the ones sound like and like how we play them. But like the names get a little hazy aside from blank number nine to me. There's just, there's so many songs, but like, it just felt like it set a mood. I think we all kind of like agreed. It felt like we wanted like an intro to the record that wasn't like, we didn't want to like just hit in with a track. Like it just felt like, because there's like strings on this record, there's other elements beyond just a typical, like here's my guitar, my fuzz, like my overdrive on my guitar, my bass and drums and vocals. Like, you know, it felt more like an orchestral thing to us. Um, yeah, orchestral like, was a word I was going to bring up in the in the next song because it definitely applies. But yeah, for sure, like this is like you're building to a crescendo for sure. Yeah, and I think that was just kind of like we wanted to set a stage for the record, like to to bring it all into context. Like you know, you're walking into a room. This is like okay, what do you see around you? <laughs> kind of thing. So. Yeah, if we had hit, just hit in on, like, say Heartbeat in the Brain was just, like, the starter, I don't, I think it would have kind of blown when it hits to just, like, one guitar, and then you're like, oh, shit, like, something's starting, something's going, okay, cool, like, what's next? And, like, Heartbeat in the Brain itself, I think, is just, so, like, a, I mean, we use the phrase, like, mission statement a lot when we talk about, like, the first mm-hmm. songs on albums, but I think this song does, like, such a good job of telling the listener the this band listens to more than just uh, american football like yeah literally like that's like if 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 you hadn't said a band i was literally going to say that like right there yeah yeah (laughs) um and it's it's got the orchestral flair and then like i want to say the back half or maybe just the last minute and a half like if you take away that like really pretty ambient uh like sorry ambient lead guitar line uh it just is like a heavy ass hardcore breakdown basically (laughs) Yeah, so that song yeah, has, like, the strings, which, like, was the band really, like, like cursive. So, like, clearly we have, yeah. like, the tempo and stuff. But, like, then we go into, like, the atmosphere like, Caspian or whatever other post-Rocky bands. But, yeah, the ending, it's funny because we've changed up how we play it live. Like, it's still intact as the same part, but that part is what caused me to get, like, a baritone and, like, pitch shifter pedals and stuff after the record came out because when we did this song i specifically remember tracking the song we had like recorded whatever guitars are there but we were all kind of like this like should be a little heavier but it's like us playing like capo on like the seventh or eighth or seventh or ninth fret like through a fender twin reverb kind of thing like on a like a telecaster like it's not as heavy-ish as we wanted and like 
the dude who recorded it, I remember us being like, you know, should we add like another guitar, like, like a lower guitar, like something tuned down, like maybe an octave from where it is or something. And it was like, no, definitely not. Like it doesn't need that. And when the record came out, I was just like, God fucking damn it. Like I wish we did that. <laughs> like even when we were playing it live, it was like, I got an octave. I borrowed an octave pedal from the studio co-owner because he's played in various hardcore bands throughout the years, like, like large hardcore bands. And like, I was like, oh, this sounds better. Like I should have done that. We should have done that. Like, fuck. That's like, and then that played into like the next record. Like we were like, fuck, what could we have improved? Like we could have given that part more depth. It's cool how it is. But like in our heads, we thought it was like stonery or, or like more metal doomy than it was. Like heavy mm-hmm. post rock kind of thing. But yeah. So you have that, and also a thing that's like notable about Heartbeat in the Brain is that it's like long, or yeah, not like looking, a, looking an epic song, but it's almost six minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I literally I had to pull up the fucking Wikipedia page for it to see what the track length times were. Like, I don't want to bring Spotify. I didn't feel like Spotify, but five forty two, which. The joke of the band has been like, oh, what are you going to have, like a seven or eight minute track again? Which, <laughs> on that record, there was only one track that was seven minutes, and it was the last one, and it's seven minutes. Like, it didn't exceed seven. It's just, like, funny. I, at the time, we thought Heartbeat in the Brain was, like, the longest fucking thing, like, we had ever, like, could have done. Right. And, like, looking at it now, 542, I'm like, that's, like, fucking, that's part of the course for, like, what it is, like. But do, like, people... <laughs> consider like a lot of these three song runs as like one track like like picture of a tree that goes into you'll never go with space and stuff like that do people like think that's the joke that could be like we just all wanted like a concise like uh record that flowed yeah i guess that might be part of it but like fuck it like it's a different track on the record (laughs) (laughs) but i think that's notable because you have like this like kind of longer song and then it goes right into Fight Boat, which is super yeah. short, super punchy. Uh, it's the Easy Core song, too. Uh, you got, like, the easy core. Like, the, fun, <laughs> the fun, jaunty synths. Like, honestly, like, I, I, I made the Easy Core joke, like, Four Years Strong, but I, I feel like when the synths kick in, this song sounds a lot like Motion City soundtrack. Motion City's cool. That first record, they did that with Ed Rose. He did a lot of e- cool emo records. Yeah, have you ever heard, uh, uh, like, their old demos and stuff when they were, like, a Midwest emo band? No. Like before they started doing more pop punk thing. Oh, they're sick. They're super sick. <laughs> um, but anyway, anyway, actually, I, while we were touring on whenever, if ever beginning of 2014, the singer of motion city soundtrack had like a side project that opened for us. It was, it was us into it over it. And great big pile of leaves did a full U S tour and the motion city soundtrack singer his like side project band, and I think it might have been the keyboard player from Motion City. Their side project opened for us in Minneapolis, and that was fucking trippy. Because I was That's like, so I grew sick. up like listening to like that first Motion City LP. Like, what the fuck is going on right now? Yeah. Are we on fight boat now? Because I have a yeah. Oh, we're on we're on okay. fight boat. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So I wanted to ask if this is like yeah. deliberate that like all of the full links have like a two minute song that's kind of stands out because it's so catchy like yeah. the word like the the word lisa the and word then lisa, and then the future dylan and her son there's the future there's also dylan and her son dylan yeah. and her son was 
mainly meant for that, like on always flooring. There were like a couple, we we did get like we did have like a couple other little pop jammers, but like that was like fun for us. We were like, oh, we just want to have like a short song where like we know like we know like people are gonna appreciate it, but it's like fun for us. Like it doesn't all have to be this like emotional fucking like roller coaster or like like this like super like deep thing like let's just have fun with a song like mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. like the two minute thing that's fine let's throw it in there and like i will say that the title of the song fight boat i just drove by where um we got the name it, it was because we played a show in new jersey at a college and we had to drive through manhattan there's like uh and there's like um these like aircraft carriers over there and we 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 were driving to the show, which Maps and Atlases had dropped off the show last minute, and we got their guarantee, which enabled us to buy our first van. But on our way to that show, we saw these aircraft carriers and people just, I forget who, someone just called them Fight Boat, and that's like, <laughs> we should just name a fucking track that. That's so stupid. And like, here it is on the record fucking years later i'm talking about this on a podcast <laughs> uh, can we also t- i mean i don't exactly remember what it is but the fight boat challenge on tumblr was that something with like the horn part yeah and i think you had to shotgun a beer or something is that accurate <laughs> that sounds about right i i that sounds about right for like tumblr challenges i'm straight edge and like i don't drink or anything so like i <laughs> things like that but i was just like i don't drink beer so i don't like fucking i like didn't really understand what shotgunning a beer was to like probably that time i was like i don't do hey, that f- for my six year straight edge anniversary this year i shotgunned uh fucking polar so you could do yeah, that polar yeah northeast that's yeah polar factory is like right near like within an hour of me i drive by it all the time oh shout out shout out to polar yeah, shout out polar seltzer they've been sponsoring some people Maybe they'll sponsor us one day. Sponsoring the band? <laughs> yeah, they sponsored like uh, that band of Casey's Strain. And like, uh, <laughs> who else? Is that real? Oh, yeah, Sponsor? that's real. Polar sponsorship. The emotional rockers, indie rockers over here, would love that polar sponsorship. Damn. Um, but We're going to gun for yeah, that. Yeah, so fight boat. That was, that was a conscious decision of like, we wanted just a short pop jammer. It's like fun. On mm-hmm. the record. And then like, that was deliberate that like harmlessness and always foreign would have one or just like yep. break. okay yeah whenever we've written those records we've always been like we need a short pop jammer those are fun we don't want to have only like seven minute like post rock songs you need the breather track there um yeah then you get into this is a, this is actually my favorite song on the entire record picture of a tree that doesn't look okay which talking about screamo stuff for a second the reason uh-huh. this title exists <laughs> Is because it was like, uh, and they're friends of mine. I love them. The saddest landscape. But someone in the band was like, came up with this phrase. I don't remember who. Someone in the band, not me. I. But they, <laughs> they were like, that sounds like it'd be a saddest landscape song title. Let's make it a song title. Oh my god. <laughs> so, I uh, I've Primo. always hated the fucking track title too. That's perfect. I've yeah. always loved it though. So I've always I guess loved I've... it in like a cringe way because like it, it's clearly like a joke of some sort. 
but yeah, I just hate the phrase. I feel like you can't be a fan of The World Is and then read that song title and not think it's a piss take. Um, <laughs> I, or, like, I be aware of, like, their, the social media antics. <laughs> yeah. I, I think at the time I was like, that's a funny, like, working title, but, like, really? Like, this is a record we're going <laughs> to put out. But, like, I have to I embrace it now. That's fine. It's chill. But, like, trying to show that when that song came out, when that video, there was a video that came out for that song, like an animated video. When that yeah. came out, showing that to friends of mine, and they see the title, they already see the band name, and they're like, "Yo, what?" And then they see the title, and they're like, "What the fuck do you do again?" Like, <laughs> was the worst like intro to anyone. Like, hey, you playing a band? Oh, what's your band sound like? All right, here it is. <laughs> picture of a tree that doesn't look okay by the world is a beautiful place and i am no longer afraid of that yeah trying to explain that to the dudes that tattooed me at the time was like (laughs) like (laughs) fucking insane vision like everyone was like what is wrong with you (laughs) yeah i I enjoy that track a lot that uh, i don't think we've played it in like a year or two but that's always like a fun one the thing that like sticks out to me and that always grabs me about this track is you have like kind of like a more more standard uh, sort of first half, and then you know mm-hmm. the drums come in, it picks up, and there's like the you know where do the echoes go, like call and response bit, uh, yep. and like it's just that moment of like pure sonic euphoria, mm-hmm. like that you <laughs> normally only get from like post rock bands, but you somehow manage to squeeze it into this this four minute little opus and. I I remember like listening to that record and thinking it was pretty good so far, and then that part hit, and I was like, "Oh, this record is like for me if it's gonna keep doing stuff like this the entire time." Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, playing that live is fucking nuts because Steve, and he'll hate me for saying this, Steve, our drummer, he has an issue where he likes to speed things up live, and while he's <laughs> he can play very fast like much faster than most drummers I've ever worked with. And like trying to play the rhythm part to that, it like is insane. And I used to play the lead part for it. And like that, I literally felt like, like it was meant to be a lead, not a solo, but it feels like a solo when we're like ripping through it like twice as fast. And I'm like, fuck, fuck, fuck. I need to like keep up with this. This is like, I feel like Slash now and I don't even like that. But uh, yeah, that I do love like the the first half of that, like like that like spacey weird beginning. I remember someone like I have guitar swells in the first half of Picture of a Tree, and I remember being so stoked when like one of the first reviews for the record, it was from like a notable place, that it sounded like someone taking a bong hit, and I was like, of course, like the fucking idiot straight edge dude in the band like makes the part that like someone is like sounds like a bong hit, and I'm like. Damn it! Like, I wanted it to be like spacey and out there, but I didn't know it was that. Also, yeah, the and... song has like one of my favorite first opening lines. Do you think the landlord's pissed? That's just like, <laughs> hell yeah, yeah. Which okay, that is like some real shit. So like, the place oh we god, practice, the place we used to practice at um, was called the Handsome Woman, and that's where like most of the band, uh, half a good chunk of the band lived, and that's like where they record, they like self-recorded like the first two EPs and stuff. Um, it's called The Handsome Woman. It did tons of house shows for years. And 
it was like kind of like the the neighbors next door hated everyone who lived there because like their fucking cat but the neighbor's cat would come to the house like where we practice and like people would feed the cat and then the neighbors get pissed that like the cat wasn't eating at their house and the cat wasn't at their house and, and then like there would always be so many people over at the house at once. A lot of people lived there. And then when we practiced, it was like another five people coming or whatever that like people would park on the lawn and the, the actually the neighbor would get fucking pissed. So like, it was like a real thing. Like that was like, I picture the guy like yelling in his yard when I hear that. Cause <laughs> I saw it. <laughs> so that was, that was actually real. That wasn't like a made up thing. When we first, when whoever wrote those lyrics, I was like, yo, that, are you sure we should put that? That's like, is that too nail on the head sort of thing for what we just experienced yesterday? And, but then I realized like, oh, no one's going to know, like, no one's going to think that they didn't witness that. You know, you weren't so, going to yeah. get your security deposit back either way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whoever lived there, I don't know. I don't, it, that place was crazy. That house. But, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that this is, you know, something this record excels at too, but like generally I think the more specific you are when talking about things, the more people actually relate to it. Um, Mm -hmm. I think a line like that, do you think the landlord's pissed? Like so many people can connect maybe not with that, like very specific feeling, but with like the general sense behind it. Um, Mm -hmm. And also not to get too political, but while we're on the subject of landlords, uh, shout out Mao or Ted Kennedy's too. Oh, Mouse oh. Mouse I don't <laughs> <laughs> think I think that's it. Like I have a degree in history. I was like I, I was like I think that's mean, but I'm not sure. <laughs> Unless I missed something on Twitter in the past twenty minutes. Like, <laughs> no, I was just doing a like a sketchy shout out to Mouse saying kill landlords. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um so picture of a tree that doesn't look okay segues into uh you will never go to space. Um, Which is a stupid statement that I said. That Sick. song title okay. is a stupid thing that I remember saying. I don't remember the context. I think we were like, it was just like us talking about like atmospheric, like layering and like, I don't even know. It just was like, we were just like, you know, it's one thing you're never going to do. You will never go to space. I'm like, kids online would get like, I, I, po- I remember one of us posted it and some, some kid got fucking furious. It was like I I don't think you like I'm not trying to be an asshole like you just actually won't go to space like that's just the reality of it like I think of things you can't do like fucking shit like you're an asshole fuck you all your posts are stupid and I was like okay all right one thing to get angry about it was it was insane like yeah so then that ended up as a song title and it's dope I back it. Well, this is the uh, um, easy core song too. <laughs> the things I didn't ever think would be associated with this record. <laughs> well, that the E word is easy core, right? buddy. The E word, yeah. I guess easy core is back, right? Like it's like it's like been long enough where like no one's like embarrassed about it anymore. It's like nostalgic again, right? Yeah, I don't I don't know if I'd go so far as to say it's back, but it could definitely be heading that way because people are not like ashamed to admit that they like chunk no, no captain chunk or whatever. Yeah, which I remember I remember being at practice and someone showing me that band and they were like, Do you ever hear this shit? And I was like, Oh no. Like 
I was like, like someone got like was like really into like Meshuggah, but they really liked Blink One Eighty Two, and they were really confused. And so, like the first whatever the early stuff was, it sounded like gent pop punk. Yeah, the fucking friends we trust, right? That's I think that was my introduction. Yeah, their music video. They were probably outside having some sort of party. Yeah, it's the hey dudes, are you ready to? Yeah. Oh my god, that fucking thing online. Hey dudes, are you ready to? Like that meme, like. It's coming back. That thing's coming back. Yeah. I'm going to post the 10-hour loop of it on the Twitter feed later. Uh, <laughs> Wait, so, Ellie, why do you keep saying that shit sounds like Easy Core? Is it because of the synth? It's because of, of the synth and just the general, like, upbeat nature of it. Uh, <laughs> it's not even an insult. I really like Easy Core. <laughs> we know, I'll, Ellie. I'll, we know. Okay. <laughs> I'll take it. Fine. I'll, if you find some component, that's chill. Like, I respect it. Because uh, there's Newfound Glory, Easy... That's easy. That's, like, the Easy Core band, right? Uh, that's, like, proto-Easy Core. I think yeah. they, like, came up with the name Easy Core in, like, 1998. Oh, okay. Um, Can I tell you a story about Newfound Glory? Yes. Okay, so their singer posted about My Heart to Joy. He posted about our LP back in, like, 2010. And Newfound Glory, like, a couple weeks later, was playing my the college I was going to. And so I posted to Newfound Glory or their singer and got his number and he got me and the rest of my heart to joy into the show at my college. And he was like really chill. He bought a ton of wine and like he had like this backpack full of wine and he was like talking to us about like like mostly like pitchfork bands like like stuff that would have like played like Coachella or some shit. Like, like he was like, I like indie rock. Like he's like, pop punk is like fine, but like he's like, I do it for a living. But I love indie rock, and like went on and on about like all the indie bands that he liked. And so he had this like backpack of wine, and he's like, Yo, I brought these in because like the school like wouldn't get us like alcohol. Like do you guys like drink? Like do you want any of this like wine? And literally, like I was twenty. Someone in the one or two people in the band were like 21, but like the whole band was everyone in that band was still straight edge. And we were like, no, sorry, dude, we don't like drink. And he was like, oh, sorry, sorry. I'm like, um, um, yeah, he he was like chill, but it was like, what? It was like such a weird experience. And like he was like mentioning like Newfound Glory songs to us, like when we were just like talking, like it was like it wasn't like he was like bragging about them but they would just come up in conversation but he like quickly realized that none of us like really knew newfound glory at all like i knew like a couple <laughs> and he was like it like got really awkward and he was just like oh you guys don't really listen to like my band do you and we're like honestly no like i don't i know you had like the my friends over you song and like one other one i i can't say i can name anything and he was like, "Yo, that's cool. That's fine. I respect that." He was like very nice about it. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> I I couldn't tell you why, but that story made me feel like warm in my heart. <laughs> it just made me like really happy to hear. Um, Anyways, you'll never go to space. <laughs> you'll never go to space. It's like there's two songs really in between a picture of a tree and then Ultimate Steve, which I I think are like the two of the uh, you know like bigger anthems. Uh, to me at least on the record yeah. and they're both like punchier and more uh, 
like like brief, but they don't like sacrifice like any atmosphere because of their brevity, you know? Um, yeah. I will say that um, layers of skin that we dra- layers of skin we drag around. That was written before I joined the band, but I think Nicole wrote that maybe with Josh for like a band like a couple years previous. So like when we were writing the record, someone was like, "Oh, I have this demo of a track. Why don't we throw it on the record? It's a short pop jammer." And it made it to the record like that that actually that song predates all the other ones pretty much huh, but right um, it's the shortest song yeah. on the record too i think yes which according to wikipedia is one minute and 33 seconds um which, <laughs> so so there's a lyric in here that i want to clarify for people so uh you have the tonight i feel just fine i feel like a 2.5 i would never trade this time for anything else okay no one like I think like we answered something online like years ago, but that line, the 2.5 thing, people took that as like a rating for so- how someone looked. Oh my like, God. <laughs> people uh. like thought it was that. And I was like, but it's not, it was actually um, something related to our, our original singer, Tom. Um, Cause he's, he's like, he's throughout this record as is our current singer, David. And like David had joined when we were recording this record, so like it's all kind of mixed up like who's doing what vocals like i even lose track because at the time david sounded very sounded very similar to tom just by chance so the 2.5 line it relates to tom's um it's something with his blood he had like a like a blood clotting problem like blood thinning problem and so like every week or two he would go to the doctors and they would um give him a rating on what his blood like thickness was i think it was it was something like that and so if he had a 2.5, I think it was good. So, um, cause he, he, he had various like health issues throughout his life. And that was like one of them that made it like harder to tour at the time. Yeah. So that line is, is about his like, uh, like blood, like thickness or something like level. It wasn't anything to do like, Oh, I feel like a 10 tonight. Like I'm like you know, the hottest person around kind of thing. Um, but yeah, that song's fun. I, we play that occasionally, I think, because it was like only like a couple guitars. Like, there's still some stuff on whenever if ever where we were like still trying to figure out like how to really work with three guitars. Right. Like the fun thing about this record is it was like experimental to us because we were just kind of learning as we went. We we're like figuring, still figuring things out. Like you know that sort of like blindness going through it is like a cool thing and leads to weird shit that you probably wouldn't normally do i mean uh, yeah and i think it it like also leads to like some of like the most like fun outbursts on the record like ultimate steve i i feel like this is a song that doesn't get talked about enough because like the end like the gang vocals are just like so cathartic um Mm -hmm. and that that's really a song where i mean that one and getting sodas where i feel like you can get the sense that this is a lot of people in a in a band with each other who are having fun and who it's like fraternal in yeah. a sense mm-hmm. you know which the ultimate steve thing okay so uh, we have a song called mega steve that's on the are here to help you split with your mm-hmm. mega steve is a term given to steve from uh one of the dudes in algernon um when we played with them because they 
saw Steve drumming and they were like, yo, you're mega Steve. Like, you are, holy <laughs> shit. And like, that has now turned into this fucking joke where like, like, we're seeing it through on Ultimate Steve. We keep like raising the bar, like Infinite Steve, Ultimate Steve, like mega Steve stuff. So, That's pretty fun. Yeah, that, bring, that goes back to playing shows with Algernon like years before. There's so much lore on this record. And I think that that also kind of points to like the fact that this record, you know, I, we've talked about this on this podcast a couple times, but this record is like a definite tipping point, like we talked about earlier. And I think that's because like in a lot of ways, it's the, a culmination of like all these years of this scene that was kind of toiling in the underground. And the world mm-hmm. is was like one of those bands that, you know, if you were into the scene, you knew about them, but they still hadn't had an LP out. And then you put out this LP and it's just like not only all these like cultural in jokes and references coming together, but like all the disparate sounds coming together. Um, and I think that that honestly shines me the most on Ultimate Steve. Thanks. Yeah, I it's funny because people ask us to play that. Um, but it's been like years. Like, I, I feel like we tried playing it live around when it came out, but it wasn't ever sounding right. So we just kind of like ditched it. But, like, in turn, like, that and Fight Boat became, like, two things that, like, people have asked us about playing a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I guess Ultimate Steve, then it goes into gig life, which... Which I like to think of this as the replacements moment on the record. It's, like, the shambolic uh, acoustic song. There's, like, a transition from Ultimate Steve into gig life that I remember us, like, spending a lot of time on. Like, trying to get the build on the drums right and, like... Mm-hmm. Yeah. stuff like that like that was all like when we were doing that was an example of like it wasn't like out of the it wasn't like out of left field for us but we were very much feeling out still like how to do transitions like that and like shit so i mean like one thing that i think is commendable about this record is despite all the different sounds that the band is trying on uh the production is extremely consistent like this is like i mean i to to give like a like a polar opposite example, you'd do like high tide of hotels. Uh, nothing was missing. That's another which, band that we had played with years ago. Yeah, but th- that that record, I love it, but it sounds so much like a whole bunch of different recording sessions kind of thrown together. And then this record is just like very cohesive, which um, is which is like wild because the recording of this record, right, 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 started in <laughs> it started in 2012. And we had booked out, we had like uh, a week or two of time. Like it wasn't every day, all day. It was like uh, kind of thrown around in, in that two week span. But we did most of the instrumentation at that during that. We or did a lot of it in that two week span in the summer of 2012. And so let me think like that was a lot with focus on drums. I did all my guitars, like all my guitars in that original session in just eight hours, like literally like 8 p.m. to fucking like whatever in the morning um because i had a recording session that day then i drove up to massachusetts where we were recording the record i just drove up myself did my guitars and fucking left at like five in the morning or something and um so there was that period but then throughout that whole fall there was like random sessions where we would go and record vocals and we'd scrap them and then I was recording stuff like we'd get our we'd get roughs back and be like, oh, I don't like the guitar sound on this. Let's redo the guitar. So I would have my own 
recording setup and like be recording layering and extra stuff like piano the, all the piano was done at silver bullet me and greg uh, we did all the piano um and then like other guitars we would do it practice it was such a mishmash of stuff that it's like crazy to think about like it like doesn't sound like it was recorded in like so many different spots like i would just bring like an interface with my laptop to practice or like some other place or like greg's house or the handsome woman or or record stuff at the studio at silver bullet like it was like a mishmash of stuff and like the dude who recorded it his name's ryan stack he did the main stuff in the mix but i think he freaked out when i sent him everything that we added to the record because it was like a 10 gig like zip folder that i sent him and he, he like messaged me he's like what the fuck guys like what is this shit i didn't think he was he was like so fucking freaked out it was like fine in the end but it like blew his mind because <laughs> like when we told him we were recording re-recording a couple things i think he assumed it would be like a couple guitar parts but it was like vocals guitar piano uh synth we'd have like katie our our synth player she played stuff on this record um this is like around when she joined like yeah it was like a mishmash of stuff i have to imagine that's like intimidating as fuck to like try and try and put that all together into into one unit Um, yeah i'm not like jealous of ryan the guy who ended up like mixing it and like had initially tracked a lot of the stuff I'm not like envious of the shit he had to go through because we were definitely like kind of a mess with that. Like it's our first LP. The first LP for any band is always going to be like this fucking wild ride. And it was a very like big learning experience for us because we had originally planned for that record to come out fall of 2012. We were originally just going to track the record in a two week span, be done. That's it. Go on tour fall of 2012. Turned out it didn't come out till summer of 2013 which at that time felt like infinity because we had like been writing it for like a year or two before that. But gig life was originally brought to us by Tom. Tom had like the main, like the main like lyrics, the the first half of it, like is what Tom had, but like, it didn't feel like it went anywhere. You know, it was just kind of like a first chorus, first chorus. Here's like my two minute thing, you know? or mm-hmm. less so then i i remember when we were at practice one day we were playing through it and we were like why don't we i i remember having the suggestion of making it like like a typical like here's a three quarters change and then bring back the chorus like thing which in the end worked out i wouldn't suggest that for everything but like it worked for that like i do like that section where like after what is kind of the second chorus, it kind of goes to like what is like basically like an instrumental for a little right. bit and then kind of builds back up into the last like part, which is like, I guess, like the last chorus. Um, yeah, that that I do have fond memories of writing that track. That was fun. So. Yeah. And this is also one of the songs that popped up before the record because it was the single on Broken World Media before that, too. Yeah, we did a lathe cut, which was like. I remember we did a lathe cut single of it, which was like a minute 30, which was just Tom and an acoustic guitar. And then Steve played Xyla's vibraphone because Steve has access to like the auxiliary percussion at a college that his dad teaches at in Connecticut. Um, his dad's like a professional tuba player and like uh, 
conduct. I think he conducts like uh, ensembles at this college. So that's kind that's of cool. He's very, very orchestral. So like he knows how to play all this stuff. It's like why is drum style the way he is? Because he he learned from like someone who was more of an had an orchestral background and rather than like a Dave Grohl like standard drums. This is like kind of the meathead like kick snare kind of, hat kind of thing, you know? So, yeah. And I remember being in Europe when the first time we were in Europe, uh, that brand Quicksilver used gig life in like an ad, like a, like a, like a surf ad. Oh, really I remember weird. that. Yeah. Yeah. I remember being in Germany in Darmstadt, Germany, uh, checking my phone and I was like, what the hell? Like, it's not like we, it was like they probably paid like a couple hundred bucks for the track to use it and it's like 30 second thing it's not like someone bought a fucking house with that literally <laughs> i think it might be 200 dollars um i have to i have to preface that but like you know like i was like what the hell this is so weird this is cool cool but yeah i i that song is fun like yeah yeah and now they play like hipster rock and fucking journeys <laughs> like <laughs> They play Sunny Day Real Estate and Journeys. That's like a true story. I've heard it. Um, I I believe it. Uh, and so then we hit Low Level Lights, which Low is uh, which is like one of those tracks that, that I think this is the only track on the album that I I would say like commits to being more atmospheric most of the way through. Yeah. Yes, um, which this track is a last minute addition to the record. The a lot of, everything but maybe the vocals. I tracked it Silver Bullet. Um, maybe the guitar I tracked at practice, but like I recorded most of that track, except for vocal engineered it. But like uh, we had another track that like got cut from the record because like, the guitars were like messed up and stuff. I have a demo somewhere. That track was called Chris's First Day of Preschool, uh, <laughs> which was not going to be the record like title, but like that track got cut late in the process like late in the fucking game like we were going to do like the final mix of the record and like a couple weeks before we were like we have a new song here sent it off yeah that one we did a video for that uh with alex henry who's in basement and Mm -hmm. uh now i've worked with his other band fiddlehead um with is like him and a couple dudes from um, Tabhar and uh, yep. other people, which like it, it like it's like crazy like the, these like people you meet like through the years because it's like they come and go and like it's just like weird connection. But we did the video for that song at a reservoir in Connecticut because it looked kind of like the cover. Like we consciously did that because um, when I saw the image for the cover of it, that looks exactly like a spot I used to go cliff jumping at, and we did. <laughs> the video at this spot where me and all my friends would go clip jumping at um in high school and like early college and um well so what was the process the thought process behind putting this song in in my like in my opinion i feel like this is kind of like the flip side of fight boat like mm-hmm. uh, but, you know it's it's also a breather but in the sense that you just had a couple bangers and then the acoustic track and you're about to go into the the epic length closer so was it kind of that where you were you just like uh we need to like put in a breather here to like kind of keep the energy uh like keep the energy like in flux so people uh are like still kind of surprised by the end maybe i i like 
I don't think we have the track listing fully decided by this point. Like, I think it was still, like, kind of in flux. But I think we decided we wanted something that wasn't, like, a fucking, like, top jammer or something. And it was kind of, like, played to, like, more of the atmosphere stuff we were trying to expand more on. Or, like, just, like, this more, like, indie, like, tamer track. Like, really mm-hmm. spacey. Like, um, so I think, I think it, it was just kind of because it played towards that. And I think, if I remember correctly, I think there's, like, a sample of, like, cars driving by in the beginning. Yeah track which uh i'm pretty sure greg recorded cars driving by his apartment on his phone and then like gave me the file like i i distinctly remember having my audio interface at greg's the house that greg was living at and like him like being like yo i sat by the road today for like a few minutes here's a sample let's try to make it be in the beginning of this atmospheric track i think it'll be like kind of cool um yeah so it was like a lot of weird and this is also like sorry go ahead which the piano i'm gonna say that the piano that's on this record is the same piano that was on the hostage comp self-titled record oh that's sick so i mean there's like a ton of other records it was on like there's an acoustic make doing men record and a a lot of records that i've worked on or greg has worked on through the years like not limited to that but it ties into like things aren't like as like separate as you may think like in the world music wise and i think this is also the song that for like the most foreshadows uh harmlessness like kind of like zoom out from the song yeah but you kind of zoom out zoom out from like the intentions of this song and you get a lot of like the more like explorative elements that i think are happening harmlessness i think that's cool i've never heard anyone say that but like i think that's a really view of it i actually like dig that i like that thanks i never thought of it like that that's that's good you're good (laughs) well well i also one last thing about this track but it segues into the next track uh i feel like this this track was also kind of necessary from like an artistic point of view for like showing all sides of the band that kind of collide on getting sodas which is kind of like this amalgamation of all the different sounds that have been explored kind of mm-hmm. pushed into one thing. And I think the length of getting sodas helps it too. Uh, so that you yeah. don't feel like it's just like spastic and throwing everything at you at once. Every element is kind of given room to breathe. And this is the, this is actually the song that I show to, to non-believers. Um, friend of the pod, Josh, has actually long harbored uh, a bit of animosity towards the world is for whatever reason um but i finally was just like dude just listen to getting sodas and he listened to it and he was like okay this is sick (laughs) that's funny that's sick that's i personally personally when we were writing getting sodas i didn't want it on the record i originally didn't like it because i thought it was too like rock like like even like drop D and I was like, you know, what are we doing? Like it all worked out and came together. Cool. But when that initial shit was coming up, I was like, yo, like this is like not really where we're going. Probably. Right. If that makes sense. Like it felt like weird that we were playing in like low drop D stuff at the time. I can't, but I can't imagine this record without the song. 
yeah, same, same. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I love playing it live. But at the time, like when we were first writing it, I was like not giving it a chance. Like in my, my own head, I was just like this, we like do fucking better. Like this is like, oh, four chords and drop D. Like that sounds like, to me, it felt like rock metal. Like, for, but that's like not what it is. Like I had this two like tunnel vision view of like the one little riff and like didn't see around it. But like, and I was like unsure if I liked Greg's yelling part in it, but like in the end, I liked it. It like it was like a lot of things came to this song was so frustrating because it was like we spent so long trying to figure out how to do the build and like those lyrics at the end that are the band name weren't originally in it. It was just a long post rock build and like we spent like days and days and days over the course of months like trying to figure out what the fuck to do with it. It was like the peak, like the end of the record and it's like what do we do? Like we know this track is can do so much through all the frustration came together well that's so crazy to hear like those lyrics at the end i feel are like the quintessential world is moment the Mm -hmm. world is a beautiful place but you have to make it that way um which we've been opening our we like actually like the past like a couple shows we did earlier this year we tried out just opening the set like with that and it was like really fun like opening um, wait opening the set with this with the whole song or just that build just like the build, like we changed huh. the build. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's super and, cool. And like, it kind of like, we changed the build a little bit and like it kind of like worked the way we did it as to like intro the set. And um, like, I think whenever that idea got presented, like say the band name, I was just like, yo, what the fuck? Why are we going to say our band name? And then hearing it, I was like, why didn't we think of this sooner? <laughs> like, we had like our, all our collective minds working on this for months and then uh, it was like it was that easy it was like we could have just done that that's amazing I love it <laughs> um, another thing I love about the build is uh, I feel like maybe this was not an actual influence on it but I hear shellac in it in the way that it just keeps building up tension and then it, it just drops the record ends I don't think we were conscious thinking of shellac with that part but everybody in the band likes shellac so like right it could have been a part of it well i just mean that like that's it's the opposite of the rest of the rest of the record where you know yeah. all the build-ups give way to these intense euphoric moments but the very mm-hmm. end of the record the tension is like the euphoria like the tension of the buildup is what you look forward to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of it, like it's appropriate that it just kind of fades out and you get kind of the room noise too. Um, yeah, totally. Like that's yeah. like the it, last 10, 10, 15 seconds room noise. Yeah. That like, that worked out. Like, and so I really like, I mean, I, through this record, I've learned in my own experience to like give songs a chance and not to judge it too early because there's, there's so many things on the record that I personally was like judging too early. I'm like, that's ah, not going to work. That's stupid. Like, or like, I don't think the song will make it. And then it fucking, it did. Like, it was the same thing with the next record, January 10th. I like, didn't think it was going to make it, but we worked our asses off, like getting sodas and stuff. And then they turned into like one of the songs people really know from the band, like one of like, probably one of the top songs of Spotify or something, but like, 
you know, it's like one of the songs people really want to hear. Um, and that we enjoy playing too. Like, so yeah. Yeah. And I also think it's fitting that it ends with, again, like ultimate Steve, that kind of, you know, everyone's in this together sort of chant. It's not, it's not hardcore, but it kind of pulls from that same space of community. Um, yeah. And that's why I think it's a perfect closer to a record that took what was an underground phenomenon and kind of helped spill it over into uh, the next bubble of what's going on in indie rock. Yeah, which is like wild to think about, you know? I love it, though. Sick. Yeah. That's the end of our journey, I think. <laughs> I have a couple of questions that I wanted to squeeze in here. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm sure I skipped over stuff. And, yeah. uh, I, I guess I'm sure it's changed, but was, was there ever like a band leader of sorts? Or was it all like a couple people coming in with songs or like nitpicking? Or how did that work with this huge ensemble? that rotated in it's kind of a mixed bag because like i mean there's stuff on here that like every person who was on this record that like presented stuff there was like layers of skin was presented to the band is like that's basically the song for the most part but like there's just a lot of stuff that was just like various people like that like everybody like had a hand in it's like a different thing than most bands where like someone will be like i wrote this entire song and you're gonna play this and this is it kind of thing um it, there would be songs that would start like that but they would shift like gig life was presented to us as like the first like part it was just like the basic like here are my lyrics and like the main guitar but like what can we do with it and that like collectively built into what it is and like mm -hmm. the ending the last half didn't exist that was like the band doing it and like the leads or the layering and you know all that stuff the drums like i don't think it was really necessarily like fucking whoever is just the only songwriter of the band it's not like like a typical like rock band you know like yeah yeah like when you have like well this is clearly a more copy song this yeah um the long song and that's that's it um, well, this is definitely the type of band where I couldn't imagine songs coming together in any other way but collaboratively. Like, yeah. To to have like one song be like, okay, this is like solely the work of this person seems like antithetical to the philosophy of the band. Right. Yeah, that's just like I mean, there's so many different influences going on, like. And it was always, like, kind of shifting, like, what bands people were listening to through this period, like, you know? So... For sure. Like, everyone was coming from, like, a different spot, but it all kind of, like... And still the same thing now. It, like, all kind of meets at this certain... There's, like, this common ground where it all kind of meets, like, in the Venn diagram, you know? Like... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, which is, like, really crazy because, like, I, I record and mix, like, bands, like, every day of my fucking life. And, like... I don't see that that much. Like it is like a unique thing to me. Like when I joined the band, I was like, yeah, I'll probably like, that's worth it a little, but like, you know, maybe it'll get me to like record with the band in a couple different studios. I'll learn some stuff and that'll be at the end of the day. The band will release like an EP or two. That's fine. But like, 
you know, it kind of turned into like, oh shit, like I need to like be working with this band still, like, and like experience this because it's like more unique than any other group I've worked with. And it's like kind of wild to, it's, it's hard to explain to like other people that like don't know, but like it just a lot of like some of this stuff like comes together. We're at practice and we're like, here's this idea. All right, expand on it. And it just, I wouldn't, I guess the term jamming on it, but like it sounds too like jam bandy. Like it just kind of takes form. Like we were, I think we were touring a lot. So we knew how to play to one another. Like you kind of know what the other persons might go to. And if they, and if you, you like judge it wrong, it sometimes works out in a cool way. Like, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what I'm hearing is that secretly the biggest influence on the band is fish. Yeah. 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 Which, which, I had a, I had someone in the other day, and I learned that their favorite band is Fish. Like I was tracking a band, and I realized that one of the members was like talking about seeing a band like eighty or ninety times, and I was like, nah, like who would who would you see that many times? You're not seeing like Birds in Row eighty or ninety times. <laughs> they like oh, towards you so often. Like, what are you seeing? And he's like, oh no, Fish. And I was like, come on, really? And he's like, no, seriously, I just saw them like ten times like the other week, and I was like, holy shit. <laughs> so yeah that's sick actually i have a lot of respect for that yeah i was like i backed out i was like I'm, my favorite band in the world i feel like i'd get sick of like seeing like maybe like 10 to 20 times to have to be like okay that's cool like i fucking get it like mm -hmm. <laughs> but respect um i also wanted to ask the word emo being thrown around uh did that i mean like I feel like the world is was one of the first bands that like people that were like OG emo fans were like, how is this emo? Uh, were you hearing that and reacting a certain way about that? Okay. So with that term, I had been so used to that term because my heart to joy, everyone like labeled us as like an emo band. Yeah. And like, I'm not going to deny that because like literally the band's MySpace page was like, I can't like, there was a quote on it that said like, I'm not sure if the promise ring or braid is better like <laughs> jesus like we were like 19 we're like yo braid is sick but so is promise ring i don't know which one's better like we love all this stuff like these like quintessential emo-ish bands but like it wasn't ever like but see the term gets so fucked up because then it's like what's the band with the black parade record my or, chemical romance my chemical like, romance I, yeah i kept wanting to say motionless and white my chemical romance I've never, like, I've heard, I know, like, a song or two. Like, I never listened to it. No one in the band really listened to that much. Like, that you, stuff. You just shot me through my heart. <laughs> I mean, I like other things that they would have played with. Like, but I just I never, I don't know. I feel like, I don't know. And it's like, if you like that, that's so fucking cool. That's totally sick and I respect about it like no elite <laughs> but i just love that sorry go ahead it kept getting like lumped in like people would be like oh emo like like your friend from high school would just be like yeah i know emo like that type of stuff i'm like no 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 like but i feel like the turn's been kind of dirtied up like no it's also too loose it's so loose there's bands that i see them like that's not really an emo band it's just like an indie band or whatever like i don't mind it i got a little annoyed that it was pigeonholed into like that's what it is and i was like no like 
we like Caspian and we like Russian circles and we like all these other like things that are nothing to do with it. Like beyond that, like, but it's like fine, I guess. Like it's a turn, like whatever. I just love that in 2019, you, you would still have to qualify, uh, being labeled emo with, well, I can't deny it. Like, (laughs) yeah. Like, like still there's still that that level of like four letter words surrounding it um yeah. i i just think it's funny that we're like 35 years removed from its inception and it's still like it still has that that issue <laughs> yeah it's really it's it's wild it's funny i mean like cuz you you have like the thing called emo night but like realistically we know that's just like my space emo stuff like Taking Back, like they have like the Taking Back Sunday, My Chemical Romance, like stuff that they play at those at those events are like the more pop punk leaning things. But that I feel like gets misconstrued. And if a band sound isn't like leaning towards that, it like gets confused with the world. Yeah, yeah, they've they've modernized that a little bit. Like last time I was at one, they were playing a Day to Remember. Yeah, I'm not yeah like that's not this i don't even say that's emo like what is that that's just like no (laughs) like i even see like younger bands these days that like get labeled as emo and i'm like it's not but like i guess it falls it's such a loose umbrella now you know yeah yeah but like there were like all the old heads that were saying like this is just indie rock like specifically to the world is one whenever came out yeah which like that's fine if if only if only the um if only like the rest of the world really saw that and was like why don't you go on tour with panda bear (laughs) (laughs) like (laughs) i mean it's fine i don't know it it was funny to see that but like i feel like it was just like it's like the genre changes it develops yeah. Like it has leanings towards that. The the re- like a band like World Is touches on so many things that like it's fine. It doesn't affect me. Mm-hmm. Like, and I mean, there's like cool bands that have come from that. Like that Hotel Year record, uh, Home Like you know, Places. I always mess it up. There, worded so confusing to me. Yeah, it, yeah. That I mean, that's like a fucking sick record to me. That just sounds like Third Eye Blind. Like. <laughs> That made me so happy. Holy shit. <laughs> sick. Yeah. Like, I mean, I love, I love that self-titled Third Eye Blonde record. But to me, that's what it sounds like. I, I, I guess emo. Sure. But like, you know, um, so if it makes the old heads mad, that means you're doing something right. Cause they're like too stuck in, like, I don't want to expand my taste into new bands. Mm-hmm. Like, just fucking deal with it. But then like you guys went on tour with, uh, Hey, hey Mercedes and shit, which is like the collision of a reunion and a new school band. Yeah, which it's funny. So when we did the Hey Mercedes tour, one of the guitarists, I was like, dude, this guy looks so fucking familiar. Like, why does he look so familiar? And it turns out he was doing, he was Thrice's sound guy. Uh-huh. Um, my girlfriend and I went to see Thrice, Law Dispute, and Gates, like, a month before that tour and i noticed the sound guy because he had to drive like jay hoosier and i was like what the fuck the band's sick normally i quit like the venue like whatever you know the standard sound guy i'm never like 
equate to that kind of thing. And I, I remember getting there and he's wearing the same shirt. But yeah, that was fun. I mean, it's funny because when I was younger, I didn't like Hey Mercedes. And I was like, Braid is way better than Hey Mercedes. Hey Mercedes is stupid and straightforward. I don't fucking get it. And then like, I, got, I like later on, like years later, like Steve, our drummer was like, you should check out Hey Mercedes again because they are fucking sick. And I checked it out again. And I was like, Hey Mercedes is sick. And for multiple years, I told people that they did not like them. And then I toured with them. And it was sick to see them play. Yeah, Every um, Night Fireworks, classic record, yep. for sure. Yep. Yeah, it's, yep. it's, it's sick. We played, I will say the first tour I did with World Is where I play, actually played was our tour where we played South by Southwest. That was in 2011. We played a pizza shop called Mellow Mushroom with Bob Nana playing acoustic, which was like, that was peak, I thought I made it. Like, playing with Bob Nana, I was like, you know, Frame and Canvas is one of my favorite records. Age of Octane, amazing. Like, holy shit, we're playing with Bob Nana playing acoustic to like 50 people in this pizza shop at Southwest Southwest. That was like peak life for me right there. And I distinctly remember a drunk guy just standing in front of Bob Nana, just yelling out, play a dozen roses, just play a dozen roses. And I was like, fuck, I do love that song, but don't say that. <laughs> but, uh, like, yeah, it was cool to see, like, Bob, like, years later and be like, yo, I wasn't even in this band yet, and we played with you. We did, like, a shit DIY tour so we could play with you at a pizza shop in fucking Texas. And now we're, like, playing with you, your actual band, Hey Mercedes. This isn't, like, a one-off, like, acoustic thing. So, yeah. Cool. Ellie, do you have anything else? Uh, no, I think I got all my word vomit out of the way already. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry if this is, like, too long. I feel like I could go on forever about this. Chris, we've had, like, four-hour episodes before. Like, <laughs> oh, I okay. promise. We had to do cool. a two-parter with Ian Cohen. That's true. Yeah. Oh, I, I didn't realize you did one with him. I saw, like, some of them. I saw, like, what was it, Guacamole? You did one with Tank and stuff. I didn't realize you did one with him. Like, yeah. Stupid. We did one with Tom Mullen, too. Sick. Yeah, but this is, I, I think, the Zenith, honestly. Oh, wait, wait, wait. We so have. Far. So we're, like, BFFs with Commander Salamander, who ate a photo of you. Okay. Hey, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> That's, so we have contact. We have, we have contact with... <laughs> all right, cool. <laughs> um, We've established so, contact. Yeah, I, this is... I don't care about Area 51 anymore. We've made contact with Commander Salamander. This is this is what I need. Um, okay, so that was like that started as like a joke, like post on Twitter. I didn't know it was going to be a music video. Yeah, and so- then it came out as a music video, and like I honestly I respect the bit. Like some friends of mine, I sent it to them, and they were like, "Yo, what? Why did they do that?" And I was like. I was like, yo, this is weird as fuck, and I back it. Like, you went to, they went to the extreme, and, like, I fucking, I'm ride or die for that shit. So, like, do it. That's sick. I, <laughs> I think some people were definitely confused, but I, I back it. I respect that they got so weird with it. That's sick. That's not even the weirdest bit they've ever done. Um, so, like, that's, <laughs> we're we're very good friends with them. I've been friends with the the singer for like three years now. They've been on the pod twice. Um, and I think my my favorite thing about specifically the Eat a Picture of Chris Teddy is it started off as Claudio the singer saying, 
hey, will you unblock me if I do this? Um, <laughs> and then there was like a two-year gap. Claudia was like blocked. I don't know how, but I was just like, oh, I won't block you. Uh, sure. You don't have to eat a photo of me, but if you want. <laughs> yeah. And then the person who actually ate the photo was the bassist, Le or sorry, the drummer, Liam. And I will never stop giving Claudio shit about the fact that he backed down from that. I feel like that that's actually not commitment right. to the bit. That's a betrayal of the vision. I'm going to have to post about that. Gonna ask about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, actually, it's funny. The person who said, I woke up to a text from uh, Tommy, who used to play in the weekdays, woke up to a text about that. And I was like, I was confused because the image that loaded was like, like the article, like, had like a title to it that I was like, I don't know what this is. And like Tommy was like, I'm sure everybody's going to be sending you this today. Hope you're well. And I was just like, I, I like closed it and went back to sleep. And then I woke back up and I was like, let me click this link. What the fuck is this? And then I read it and I was like, holy shit. This is like <laughs> shit. So I respect it. I mean, so, so Claudio, if you're listening, just fucking eat the photo. Like, what the hell? Why throw it on another band member? Like, you commit to the bit. You got it unblocked. I'm going to fucking block you again. I don't give a shit. That's how we have to end the episode. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is the title going to be Commit to the Bit? It's got to be the title of the record, but we could put it in the show notes that Claudio is getting called out. Yeah, like a, like, a, like a lesson in committing to the bit. Because, like, I guess we committed to the bit and some dumbass shit in here. Like, fight boat or picture of a tree that doesn't look okay. Like we Making Harambe t-shirts, making Blink-182 t-shirts. Yeah, I so I made those and I didn't tell the band. I was like, this is going to be a surprise. Like, I didn't make the Harambe shirt. I, the Blink-182 one, I was like, I got in such a deep hole of Blink-182. And I ended up on a Blink-182 yeah, podcast. Yeah, Blink-155. Yeah. Hell yeah, yo. There that was such a pleasant experience. This is a really good experience too. That was that was like such a cool fun thing and like I don't think the rest of the band understood what was happening and I was just like just go with it. I don't I don't know what's happening either but like I'm gonna I, I like posted the shirts and I immediately got a message in our group chat. I was like, What the fuck is this, Chris? And I was like, I don't know, just don't worry about it. <laughs> I love that Blink-155 is kind of like the apotheosis of weird Twitter. All, like, all these, like, weird bits that had their had their genesis, uh, like, on fucking something awful, the fuck you and die board. Like, it all kind of came together with Blink-155 in the most left-field way possible, talking about Blink-182. And I cannot say enough good things about that podcast or those mm -hmm. people. Oh, yeah. Shout out to them. I... I need to respond to a message from them. They asked me to be on another episode about something, and uh, I definitely have uh, procrastinated on that. So that this is my time now to um, respond to them. <laughs> my favorite thing about that episode is the fact that it's like a three-hour episode about a thirty-second song. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I think someone online was like, "What the hell? Like, why is this so fucking long?" And I was like, that makes sense. I was like, this is par for the course. Like, it's, the song is stupid, so the podcast has to be stupid long. So, yeah. Yeah, all right. 
sick. Thank you for having me. This was this was really fun. I I I, I dig it a lot. I like what you're doing. Um, it's like I'm glad you're like doing stuff about all these records that like are fucking sick and I don't want like lost to time or anything. So that's sick. Yeah, yeah. And thanks for letting us bug you about it.